another edition of Chapters. My name is Jim Derrick, and on today's program, I am thrilled to welcome a candidate for Congress in the 4th District, Alan Casey. Welcome, Alan. Jim, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. You are the founder of what has been called the Domestic Peace Corps. Yes. City Year. Yes. Can you tell us what City Year is and uh, how it was founded? Sure, Jim. So City Year is a a youth service, national service program. We unite young adults, 18 to 24, from all different backgrounds, all different racial and ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, faiths, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, et cetera, uh, for a year, an academic year of full-time community and national service. Uh, And our goal is to show that young people uh, really can change the world and that through the common ground of service, we can uh, build a more united community, a more united country, and attack our big problems. And that's really what it is. We started uh, 32 years ago now. And it's wildly successful. It's not only in domestically in 20 cities, I believe, uh, but but it's over in Johannesburg. uh, And it's in the UK. Is that right? That's right. We're actually in uh, 29 cities in America and three in the United Kingdom and in South Africa. That's right. Wildly successful. And the reason I lead with that story is because I think that that is the backbone and inarguably uh, that's, that was your formative years. That's where you learned that community organizing and activism was something that not only were you passionate about, but you were really good at. Well, I love it. And, uh, you know, uh, because I get to do something I really believe in and do it with people who share uh, my values and ideals. And yeah. there's nothing better when you can roll up your sleeves and actually make a difference in somebody's life. And that's what our city or core members learn to do. We work in schools, low-income schools, uh, all across the country, and now in South Africa, the United Kingdom. We serve 200,000 school children every single day. Uh, we're now, we started with 50 in Boston, and now we have over 3,300 AmeriCorps members. And it's, uh, you know, every time you sit down with one of them, you just, it just warms your heart because they're, they're discovering what I like to call their justice nerves. I think, I mean, you have a very powerful justice nerve, Jim. Interesting. Your Thank story. You. Uh, what I've learned is everybody has one. And uh, when you experience injustice directly, and you can't get this from watching TV or videos or even reading a book, you've got to experience it. Something happens inside of you and you want to do something about it. And what the City of Corps members and AmeriCorps members learn is that they can't. And once a justice nerve is turned on, it never turns off. And that's what's so powerful about it. And that leads me to my next question. Um, And we kind of led with the answer a little bit, but that's what types of changes uh, occur uh, in young people when they are led to a program of leadership like this and empowered through this program? What does it do for them? Well, you know, and we've we've studied this now. We have actual studies of of the alumni, both city alumni and AmeriCorps alumni. And, they generally have a tremendous experience. They become much more active participants in our democracy, in our community. So they vote at much higher rates than their peers who don't do a year of service. They, uh, they continue to volunteer at much higher rates than their peers who don't do a year of service. They, very interestingly, we're going through this now extraordinary racial justice awakening. I know right. in Franklin there was a gathering uh, over a thousand people just a, a month or a month and a half ago, uh, joining the protests against the brutal killing of George Floyd and saying we must do something. Well, 93% of AmeriCorps alumni, after they finish their year of service, say they are much more comfortable working with 
uh, and befriending people from very different backgrounds. 80% say if confronted with a, a problem in their local community, not only are they confident that they could figure out a way to solve it, but that they could recruit a diverse group of people to, do, to join them to solve it. Uh, so uh, it really is a powerful experience. And I mean, I believe in, you know, we started Cityer really because we wanted to be what we called an action tank yeah. for the idea of national service. I think this should be universal. I think everyone should be challenged and given the opportunity and inspired to spend a year serving their community and our country. And I really think if we did that, it would be a much different country for the better. You know, I, um, I, I lean on you as an expert in the area and other people that study uh, things like this for that. But I can tell you anecdotally, I see that myself. Um, I see that people that uh, young, young people that come from homes where their parents have been active activists tend to be more active. Uh, you see uh, young people holding signs or getting involved in political campaigns when their parents have been involved at that level. So I think there's a statistic that's on your on the uh, city or website, something about that one empowered leader coming out of that program tends to recruit a hundred other volunteers for various that's right. pursuits. That's right. And the other, the other thing they, they learn are uh, job skills. I mean, city year is often the first job. It's a service job and they learn all the 21st century skills. If you talk to any employer now, whether it's a small business or a larger company, they say, you got to understand teamwork. You got to know how to take the initiative. You got to know how to think critically to solve a problem. Um, and so the other thing that young people learn are those important 21st century job skills yeah. that employers need. And they often learn uh, a sense of purpose, you know, for our core members who graduate from high school and do a year of service before going to college, they often get into better colleges uh, after their year of service and they're more focused. When we talk to them, they say, you know, I went in understanding what, what I wanted to learn and what I wanted to study and I got a lot more out of the experience. So it really is a, it's a win, win, win across the board. We were talking a little bit off the air about um, youth and, and youth and politics and gee, you know, do people want young, fresh faces and everything else? And, and I don't think that's really the issue. Um, and, Alan, um, not that we're not young. Uh, I'm actually six months uh, older than you are, but I can tell you that uh, even with your youth, we're both a little more advanced. Uh, but in my mind, it really goes back to what you're talking about. And then how do you value youth? You've spent your whole life focused on youth and empowering youth to be involved in movement politics and movement for change, whether it be through city or, or any of the other initiatives that you launched. Robert Kennedy is really my political role model. And I love Robert Kennedy's definition of youth, which he said, youth is not a, a, a state of life, how old you are, it's a state of mind. And I think by that definition, both of us are still very young. Thank you. We believe in the chance to change the world. We believe in working with other people. Uh, that said, I also, what I love about young people, and I've been saying this to the first group of city here 32 years ago on Thompson's Island, to, to my own kids, I say, you are not only the future leaders, you're leaders today. And we see it. Uh, you know, I've got two Gen Z kids. I honestly can't wait until their generation is in charge because they are on the front lines. If you look at March for Our Lives. Yes. I was very involved with March for Our Lives, helping to build the 800 sibling marches. That group of high school students out of that terrible tragedy of Parkland, they put gun safety on the agenda. 
and it's, it's an underreported story, 30 states have changed laws after Parkland. We, and we have to get the federal government to change its laws. That's one of the reasons I'm running for Congress. But if you look at the Sunrise Movement, again, young people, they put the Green New Deal and climate change on the map in a right. fundamentally different way. If you look at the extraordinary racial justice awakening that's happening in our country right now, it is the young people on the front lines, arm in arm, every single background saying, we have to finally recognize 400 years of systemic racism and we're going to do something about it. So, uh, and I have tried to spend my life in empowering young people. And in fact, if you look at any movement for change, it's always been young people are at the front. We just lost a giant, John Lewis, who was also a friend of mine and a role model. I, I had the honor of hosting him at City Year several times. I worked with him on advancing the cause of national service. You know, uh, he's the last of the big six from the March on Washington. He was only 23 when he spoke to the, you know, 250,000 people. And, you know, he was 25 when he led the the uh, protest across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I mean, and look at what he did over the course of his life. He always stayed young, even yeah. up until his last days. Um, so he it's always certainly young people, did. and that's why I have tried to dedicate my life to empowering them. To me, and I think today more than ever, we realize that character is really important. Um, and so I think it's important to know where you came from. And I would commend people to take a look at a book that Alan wrote, uh, Big Citizenship, how pragmatic idealism can bring out the best in America. I remind everyone we're speaking with congressional candidate Alan Casey. Alan is running for Congress here in the 4th District in Massachusetts. My name is Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find my podcast at chaptersradio.com. One of the pivotal moments in your life was when you helped save AmeriCorps through um, a really, really unique organizing uh, mission. And I think to take people back, this is around 2002? It was 2003. 2003, and Tom yeah. DeLay and others are threatening what has now become AmeriCorps. Well, so what happened was, is so we, we started City, we called it an action tank. Myself and my best friend, who I was assigned to be roommates with freshman year, uh, Michael Brown, our whole goal was to inspire a commitment to national service, to, to develop a federal program. And... Mm -hmm. Anyway, Bill Clinton, when he was campaigning for president, visited City Year, and he got so inspired, he said, I'm going to make this a national program if I get elected. And he did, and he developed the AmeriCorps program uh, using City as a model, and I had a chance to work very closely with him and Senator Kennedy uh, to do that. Well, after Clinton left, and unfortunately, you know, Washington's so partisan uh, that because this was Clinton's favorite program, you know, uh, the Republicans tried to kill it every time, once they took the Congress back. Uh, and to be fair, when President George H.W. Bush, who appointed me to a federal commission on service, when he came up with points of light, there were a lot of Democrats who said that's not a good idea. But I'll tell you, you know, we were honored when we were named a points of life. The SAFE Coalition is certainly a very bright, shining point of life. Thank you. Uh, and so it goes both ways. But anyway, after Clinton left office, Tom DeLay, who was the Mitch McConnell of his day, people may remember him, House Speaker Leader, very powerful man. He wanted to get rid of the AmeriCorps program. So there was an 80% funding cut the same week we were supposed to get our grant awards. So I organized the coalition to save it. But the final thing that did it, the, the folks in Washington didn't understand what was happening in the local communities. We'd already recruited our core. All the other programs had been recruited. Schools weren't going to get AmeriCorps members. Uh, uh, After school programs were going to be shut down. 
programs to build housing for homeless people were going to end. Mm-hmm. So I said, we got to go to Washington. We got to bring people and we got to do a hearing because that's how members of Congress get their information. But let's do a people's hearing, not for two hours, but for a hundred hours, round the clock, straight through the night uh, for five days. We had so many, we had people come in from 47 states. We stayed up all night. We actually ended up going 108 hours. So many people showed up to testify. And by the end of that week, People went and testified, then they went and met with their members of Congress. And it was Republicans and Democrats. We got, uh, well, I worked very closely with Senator Kennedy. Uh, he got me the, the hearing room in the Senate, but a Republican named Chris Shays, who'd done the Peace Corps and had been an original sponsor of the AmeriCorps legislation, he got me the room in the House. Uh, John McCain testified, Hillary Clinton testified, Senator Kennedy, Senator Mikulski. We had people from both sides, Chris Shays. And that worked. By the end of the week, we built up so much attention uh, that we took an 80% funding cut and turned it into a 50% increase because President Bush, after 9-11, had promised he'd grow AmeriCorps by 50%. And to his credit, he kept his promise after this. Uh, And we saved the Corporation for National Service, a billion-dollar agency. And as a result, 1.1 million people have now served our country through AmeriCorps. Uh, fighting poverty, fixing schools, caring for our seniors, protecting our, our, our environment. Uh, and I learned a lot from that about how you need to build a movement, how you need to put people before politics, how when you unite, when you unite in common purpose, you can get anything done. And at the time, the Republicans had the House, the Senate, and the White House. And people at first said to me, Alan, this is a, a Bill Clinton's idea. It was a Democratic program. It's never going to work. And I said, you know what? If we can get people to band together and raise their voices, we can break through. And we did. And I believe that uh, that can work uh, on any issue. Alan, what in, it's a wonderful story, and thank you for that. And, and you talk about uh, generating excitement and, as you say, movement politics. What is the it factor, the differentiator? It's more than just, I think I can do something or, or just unflinching uh, bravery or, you know, what is it that made you think that Alan Casey as a, in 1985 or 86 or 87, what is it that actually gave you the audacity to believe that you could make a difference in this world? Well, it was a couple thank you, Jim. Uh, first of all, it was my parents. I mean, that unconditional love from my mom, the example of my father coming here as an immigrant, not knowing anybody. Um, and what he did, I'm just, I, I can't imagine that. That would be like me going to China when I was, you know, 22 years old, mm-hmm. not knowing the language, not having any family or friends. Uh, so it was that. But it was also meeting other people who shared my values and ideals. I mean, as we were talking about before we, we got on, nobody changes the world by themselves. Nobody. Um, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela, he was part of the African National Congress. It wasn't just Mandela. It was a whole group of people. Dr. Martin Luther King, he was part of the Southern uh, Leadership Conference, and he had Ralph Abernathy and John Lewis and A. Philip Randolph and uh, uh, Diane Nash, so many others. You think of any movement for change uh, or any or any or, or you talking about SAFE with Jen. I mean, nobody does this by themselves. And uh, I was lucky to meet folks when I was in college who we all wanted to change the world. And then we decided to do it together. So that was part of it. Um, and also then, you know, being proximate. Uh, again, another role model of mine and a good friend is Brian Stevenson. And if you haven't read Just Mercy or seen the movie, it's free on Netflix right now. You should. 
And what Brian talks about is you have to get proximate to the, to the problems. You have to be proximate to the people you want to work with. You've done this beautifully with SAFE. Uh, and as I started City Year, I was very proximate. I, I met the people in the neighborhoods that we were trying to work with. And that keeps you going because you realize, wow, um, I can link arms with people and together we can make a difference. So I think, and finally, my mother taught me this. I do believe in guardian angels. And I tell, I tell young people this especially. I said, you know, it took us six months before we raised our first dime. We got a $1,000 check. When I graduated from law school, we, we were meeting people sick for six months. Then it was really nine months before we got our first big commitment. Um, but I tell people there is a guardian angel uh, uh, principle. If you're trying to do something good in the world, people will emerge to help you. And I've seen this over and over and over. Guardian angels come out and all of a sudden somebody will come forward. You know what? I love that idea. I'm going to help you. I've seen this not just in my experience. I mean, you, you can talk about the beginnings of SAFE. Sure. Any, or any effort to, to make a difference because there is a spirit of public service out yes. there. And you can tap into that. I mean, we're seeing it extremely powerfully now in our country. Um, but you think of, I mean, de Tocqueville discovered this when he traveled across America in the 1830s. This is a very unique country, this spirit of civic activism, people coming together. Um, I've seen it in Franklin. Oh, the, the community spirit you all have um, that created the black box, right? You know, That's that right. created safe, um, that that really people band together to make the community better. That that reopened the former General Motors plant that's, right. that's now making PPE. I mean, that was oh my, and six weeks. I mean, Jeff Roy is extraordinary. It was the whole community that came together and said, "We're going to reopen this plant. We're going to get it done in record time." You know, uh, people step forward to do the legal work, to do the, the training, to put people back to work. That's the spirit of Franklin. It's also the spirit of our country. Yeah. Um, so, But you're right, we, Alan, and I, I, I thank you for that answer. That's such a great lesson for kids. I hope they're listening because, or I hope they will listen, because um, from in my life, that's what it's been. But there's always been some catalyst. There's always had to have been, for me, in my experience, it's it's – it's one thing to hear politicians talking on the Hill about what they're going to do, policy changes, politics, and so on and so forth in front of the cameras. It's another thing to see, and if you go under what your website, you'll see it as part of your story, which is beautiful, by the way, Thank how you. you outline that both photographically and otherwise. Um, you'll see you with your sleeves rolled up walking down the street, as you say, literally arm in arm with your constituents, with the people that you're working with. Um, and and so it's another thing to see somebody, boots on the ground, actually making these audacious claims that they actually think they have an idea that's got legs and they're willing to put their name on it and band with other people, not elevate themselves above everybody, but indeed elevate others and empower them to lead the organizations. It takes a, a unique person to be able to do that. But what that allows is once you do that and you invite others along on your journey, it gives um, kids a role model. It gives me a role model. Um, I And Jeff Roy, you just pointed to one now, the way he started and led our organization. He organized, he empowered, and then he faded to the back. And he allowed people to take ownership. But in his mind, the investment of faith and trust in those that he had empowered, that was more important to honor than it was the potential uh, downside or potential risk. And what he did in, in, in the process is he created a community of leaders of which there are now well over 100 people as you just said. And so that principle that you're talking about 
in my mind, is much more powerful than any policy statement or speech or um, book that a kid could read. It's actually doing it through City Year. And frankly, now we're shifting over to you as a candidate. It makes, in, in my estimation, you a very, very powerful candidate because it's just, you can look people in the eye and you can say, this is something I've done my whole life. Do you well, want to come you, along Jeff. with me? First of all, I love Jeff Roy. I mean, yeah. he is a role model of a public servant. I mean, he sure is. And, and just what you said, there are so many things you can point to in Franklin, in Medway, where Jeff Roy was the catalyst and he doesn't take the credit. He doesn't need the credit. He knows it's about empowering other people. And boy, is he dedicated. And he's a real role model for me, you know, about looking at a problem, rallying people together to solve it and then getting it done. Uh, and he's extraordinary. He's also a wonderful historian. He reads everything. He's got a real sense of... Uh, well, be careful where you travel with him, because if there's a presidential library within 200 miles of where you are, he'll take you to it. Well, he's, he's been to all of them, except for the Joe Ford Library. He told me he's just got one more, and he was going to go, and then the COVID hit, so he's still going to get there. Uh, but I appreciate what you're saying. I, I do have... Look, I've not been a politician my, my whole life. I've, right. You know, I've been uh, an entrepreneur, a nonprofit entrepreneur, an organization builder, a movement leader in the service movement. And I think that's what we need right now. Uh, we have to put people before politics. We have to take, unfortunately, the way to get Washington to work for all of us and to get the people's will is, I think, we got to open the doors of Congress. We got to get people in. We got to rally people, you know, like I was able to do fighting Tom DeLay. Uh, you know, the, the vast majority of us understand that climate change is an existential threat, and we care about our kids and our grandchildren, and we got to leave the planet safe for them. The vast majority of us understand that we got to deal with gun safety and that we should have universal background checks. We don't need assault rifles to go hunting or, or on our streets. The vast majority of us understand that COVID is real, and wearing a mask should not be a political statement. It should just be we got to protect each other. The vast majority of us uh, want a better life for our children. Right. So there's so a question, how do you bring people together yeah. to get the Congress to work? And that I've done that, and I believe I have a different skill set uh, to be able to do that. I remind everyone, we're speaking with congressional candidate Alan Casey. Alan is running for Congress here in the 4th District in Massachusetts. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find my podcast at Chapters radio.com you know alan casey could be doing a lot of things at 59 years old um so my question to you is simply why go to congress well it's uh, you know i'm a service person it started with my parents uh and this is fundamentally a service job yep um i mean people go to their congressperson for their veterans benefits if they need help for their social security their medicare their medicaid uh, for help with immigration if they want an appointment to one of the service academies uh, you know, people go to their congressperson. So that's number one for me. And in fact, I'm doing something very different uh, from anybody in the race. Uh, I'm putting together a plan for the fourth district, inspired by another mentor of mine, Paul Songus. I mean, that's the other thing. I've been blessed to have a lot of great mentors. When Paul Songus got, a, he was one of the founding three board members for City Year. And once he put his credibility behind it, just like Jeff Roy did behind Safe Coalition, things, doors started to open. We started getting attention. We started raising money. But he taught me, when he got elected to Congress, and he was from Lowell, Lowell was a dying mill town. 
And yep. the jobs have been shipped overseas, and it was really in a serious recession. Mm-hmm. He rallied the community of Lowell, all the civic business, nonprofit, education leaders. He got city and state government, and he developed with them, not alone, the strategy to turn Lowell around, and then he got federal money. He said, I'll get federal money. Everybody's got to do their part. So inspired by that, I'm doing a plan for the 4th District. All 34 cities and towns, I've been with this extraordinary army of young volunteers I have. We've talked to hundreds of voters and my approach is always build off of strength. First of all, we ask, what are the resources in your community? What are some of the unique assets you have? And then we say, what are local challenges? So for example, talking to people in Franklin, I've learned, uh, and we had lunch right there, the commuter rail, not handicap accessible. It's not ADA compliant. So uh, we're trying to bring a second line in, but you can't bring it all the way, which defeats the purpose. So. If I, and part of the reason I'm doing this is I want to be ready. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to have a New Deal moment. I think all these multiple crises we have are going to require us to do what we did during the New Deal, which is big, bold policy. So I believe there will be an infrastructure bill. Mm-hmm. And I want to be ready to say when that's moving along, you know what, there should be money to make all these public transportation stops mm-hmm. ADA accessible, mm-hmm. the one in Franklin and others. And then we can bring that second line. In. I've learned uh, another example, the black box uh cultural center, you know, which unbelievable effort to get that off the ground. Well, with COVID, nobody can go, right? We we should have support for the black box during this transition period until we can reopen. And I want to put funding in for, and it's not just black box. There's, there's cultural institutions all across our district, but nobody's thinking about that. Um, So I want to put money in for that. The 495 uh, Mass Pike interchange, Uh, the toll booths are gone. Well, we got to have infrastructure money to make that safer. So um, this is the kind of stuff I'm learning. Uh, and then finally, um, I am excited about this era of when we're movement politics. And I believe that uh, because of the experiences I've had, I do understand how to take that extraordinary energy from the street and use it to break open the doors of Congress and finally get the people's will done. I mean, I did it against Tom DeLay when the Republicans had everything. I also did it to beat Mitch McConnell. I, I put together the coalition in 2008, 2009, I actually organized a service national service conference where I got both President, then Senator Obama and Senator McCain, both nominees, to come together on 9-11 in New York. I had worked for a year and a half with Senator Kennedy and Senator Hatch to develop a new service bill, and both McCain and Obama joined on that bill. It was the only thing they agreed on during the whole campaign, and then Obama won. But to his credit, John McCain still stood up for that bill. It was one of the things Obama wanted to get done in the first 100 days. And, uh, and Mitch McConnell, like with everything Obama wanted, he opposed it. And it was, it's, it was a great bill. It was, let's grow AmeriCorps to 250,000 people. Let's you know, get more people serving our country. Well, because I understood movement politics, I organized a coalition and we got, Jim, a majority of the Republican senators to vote for that bill, even though McConnell opposed it. We got all the Democrats, but it's because we built this coalition across the country. And we had McCain and we had Hatch. So we started with two leading Republicans, but then we got everybody involved. And they went to their local Republican senators and said, let me tell you why this is important, how it's, it's working back here at home and how growing it will make a difference. So I feel like this is an, I feel privileged to be able to run for office right now. I mean, we're going through all these crises, you know, 150,000 people who've unnecessarily lost their lives, 
this racial justice awakening, the economic crisis, and I do believe that my life experience will give me an, an advantage of actually being able to make a difference for people in Franklin, in Medway, in the 4th District, that can be models for the country. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm running, and, and I actually feel uh, even more excited about the opportunity to serve. I think there's going to be a chance to do really big things like we did during the You're touching on something that, practically speaking, is really important, and that is, in my estimation, but it's a differentiator. Um, you, uh, the first year up on the Hill, you're not really learning. Uh, you, there's always things to learn, but you're not starting from scratch. Uh, you just mentioned some of the people you've worked with. Um, how many how many presidents have you worked with for? I've worked with every president since George H.W. Bush. I haven't worked with Trump because I've spent my whole time fighting Trump because I feel like he, he opposes everything I believe in. I think he's a threat to our country, to our democracy. Right. He's fanning the, the flames of hatred and division. But uh, Republicans and Democrats, I've worked with them and actually moved legislation, um, made progress. I've worked with every governor since Michael Dukakis here in Massachusetts. Again, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, I'm honored that General Stanley McChrystal, four-star general, hero, patriot, is supporting me. Uh, ambassador, former UN and, and uh, Ambassador and National Security Advisor Susan Rice, who's on the shortlist for vice president, is yes. supporting me. Um, I'm honored that Jeff Roy and Mark Pacheco are supporting me. Mark is the, the dean of the Senate, longest-serving state senator from Taunton. I'm honored that uh, uh, Mayor Mitch Landrieu supporting me. I'm honored that Michelle Flournoy, who could be the first woman Secretary of Defense, is supporting me. I'm honored that Senator Michael Bennett, again, a, a role model, ran for president, supporting me. I'm honored that I've got the endorsement of the Italian-American Democratic Leadership Council supporting me. Bruce Reed, who was Vice President Biden's Chief of Staff in the White House, uh, held my very first fundraiser. Um, Congressman Jamie Raskin is supporting me. You know, again, I've been doing this for a while. Yeah. So if I get elected, yeah. I come in with this movement, politics, organizing experience, but I also have all these people on my cell phone. Uh, yeah. I will yeah. be able to move things for the 4th District mm -hmm. uh, that just a, a regular entry member of Congress won't because these are longstanding deep relationships. Sure. People I know. I think it's I think it's a unique differentiator. Um, there's something else that I really think is unique. Tell us a little bit about your your idea or service to our country and sure. and how to fund that and everything that goes along with it. Sure. Well, I've got I've got two ideas there. So one of them, uh, we have a serious problem with income inequality and, and wealth inequality in our country. Uh, and you know, historically, the rich get richer and low income people stay low income. So. Uh, and I do think we're going to be at a New Deal moment. Now, during the New Deal, we created Social Security because we recognized that elderly poverty was just a, a scourge in our country and devastating. And that's worked. I mean, thanks, thanks to Social Security, uh, everybody has something as, as they reach retirement age. So the big problem we have right now with young people is we're saddling them with enormous debt. College debt is the second highest debt in the country, over a trillion dollars. So here's my idea. And also, we don't have an opportunity for low-income people to accumulate assets. So my idea is basically this. For every child born, we create a children's savings account. We put $15,000 in that account, funded by the estate tax. So my pitch would be to the very wealthiest people in this country who've benefited the most from what an amazing country is. Nobody does it by themselves to say, okay, you can keep a big chunk of your wealth for your kids and your family, but the other big chunk is gonna to go 
to all other kids in America to launch these savings accounts. By the time that young person turns 19, just through very moderate average safe investments in mutual funds that 529 plants have been doing, which are college savings accounts, it's worth $50,000 by the time they're 19. But to get it, you have to do one year of national service, one year of service to your community and our country. Uh, and I want to say it's for the American dream. So you could use it to pay for college. It will be more than enough to cover college debt, even with inflation. You could use it for the first uh, down payment on your first home. You could use it for job training. Let's say you don't want to go to college. That's fine. Not everybody goes. A lot of my Italian side of my family haven't gone to college and they've, they've done well for job training or apprenticeship programs and then join a union. You could use it for uh, emergencies. We're seeing now, Jim, it's devastating. Almost half the country is $500 away from an emergency. You know, their car breaks down, there's a healthcare crisis. Well, guess what? We're in that emergency now and we have lines miles long for food banks. We have people that are being at risk of being evicted. I mean, it's awful. So you would have your dream account available for an emergency that might happen. Uh, you could also use it for lifelong learning. So my kids, Gen Z, they're going to have 10 to 12 jobs over the course of their life. It's not like our grandparents who you know, have maybe one job or two. Well, let's say you want to take a course at Bristol Community College and you, you need you know, 2,500 bucks. Well, you can tap your dream account because you want to move from one field to another. Um, and you can use it to save for, for retirement. Because even if you put $1,000 away when you're 20 years old, by the time you're 65, you know, it's worth over six figures. And I think if we had this, everybody earns it by doing a year of service. All of a sudden, every young person in this country who's willing to serve for a year has assets, has their own bank account. And by the way, I want this to be lifelong. You can continue contributing to it. At tax, all tax deferred. So it's your own nest egg. It's like every kid getting a trust fund when they're born. Um, and, and if families contribute, by the way, if a family contributes starting at, at, at birth, just $500 a year, basically $1.35 a day, much less than a cup of coffee, it's worth $65,000 by the time they're 19. Now, if a family contributes, the young person gets that no matter what. I think if we did this, A, virtually everybody would serve, um, and B, uh, we launch people. We, we really take a, a big bite out of this uh, income inequality, wealth inequality problem. Um, so that's one idea. I, mean, I, it's, I just see it serving so many different purposes. It can change a whole generation of family, and it can change a community. Well, thank you. And I, I, the, the studies also show that if you have a children's savings account for college and you're, and you're not your first generation, you are three or four times as likely to go to college. Right. Right. Despite, because, you know, and this is also, it's a, it's a breakthrough American dream opportunity for young people, even if their family has not, you know, if their parents haven't had the opportunity to go. And I do think people rise to expectations. That said, what are the obstacles to something like this? Well, I think um, this idea I have right now is I think we should grow AmeriCorps to a million people right now. Uh, we need and, and put our young people to work in service jobs. You know, our young people are graduating into the worst economy since the Great Depression. Um, even as the un unemployment has come down in other groups for young people, 18 to 24, unemployment peaked at 27%. It's now at 24%. So... I say rather than putting all those young people on unemployment lines or not giving them hope, they've just graduated. We had, you know, s several million graduate from high school and college just last month. 
is to say, let's have a million young people in service and, and use their energy and idealism to fight the COVID crisis. So we need, we need 300,000 contact tracers in our country. We have about 12,000. You know, we're, we started to reopen and now we're closing. People are understanding we're not ready. Until we have daily testing for free and full contact tracing, uh, we can't safely open. Well, young people are perfect for this. You only need a high school degree to get trained to be a contact tracer. They understand technology. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the schools and what do we do about schools? Well, we can have half a million young people in an education core figuring out, can we safely reopen the schools? If we got to cut class sizes in half, well, we're not going to uh, be able to double our teaching force right away. But AmeriCorps members, we've seen it with city and other programs. They can be in there tutoring kids, helping to do the social distancing, do the daily temperature checks, et cetera, or do online learning if we need that. Yeah. Um, so we need that. We should have, in the, in the Depression, in the 30s, we created the Civilian Conservation Corps from scratch, and 300,000 people were working in it within three months. It grew to 500,000 people. Well, we have 25 years of AmeriCorps now, and a number of AmeriCorps programs are conservation corps programs. We could have a, a 21st century climate action corps to deal with climate change. And finally, an opportunity core, we're still going to have to make sure people are fed, that our elderly are taken care of, they're not isolated, uh, that people are checking in on them. So I'd like to do that right now uh, and double the educational war mm-hmm. so that people can uh, earn their, uh, their way to college also by serving today. I think the main opposition is, you know, Congress isn't close enough to the will of the people. I wrote an op-ed on this that the Boston Globe brand is the lead op-ed in the Sunday paper. And so we should have 500,000 national service jobs right now and then grow it to a million within a year. And an independent polling firm did a poll saying, you know, do you support the federal government spending the money to put 500,000 young people to work in national service fighting the COVID crisis? 83% of the people support that. 78% of Republicans support it. 89% 89% of Democrats, 83% of independents, and 83% of 18 to 24-year-olds support it. Mm-hmm. So the will is there, but the problem is, you know, Congress isn't reflecting the will of the people. And this is why, you know, if I get elected, my, what, the way to do it is you build that coalition. You have young people saying, hey, I want to serve. Let me serve. You have the schools talking about how they need help reopening or doing online education. Uh, everybody's saying they need contact tracers. So it's... The opposition is generally indifference or people are out of touch or they're not close enough and proximate. Um, you know, the American people are for this idea. And I think if I get elected, I can get that done. I know all the groups. Um, I know how to organize people. I did it to save AmeriCorps. I beat Mitch McConnell and Tom DeLay. Uh, and I think on the Restore the Dream, the Dream Account idea, I think given the level of wealth inequality and the level of need uh, and how we're seeing this now during COVID, the rich are getting much richer. You look at the market. I mean, Jeff Bezos made like $10 billion in a day. Elon Musk is now the seventh richest person in the world. Again, he, he, he went, you know, made another 10. I mean, come on, folks. Mm-hmm. I mean, When's uh, enough enough? Yeah, yeah, enough is enough. And so I think you could build the call. And I, you know, I'd make it a patriotic appeal to the wealthiest people. I'd say, look, you've, you've done better than anybody. You've gone beyond your wildest dreams, put a stake in every single young person in this country who's willing to serve. And I believe you, I could get that done. I really do. And the estate tax has traditionally gone to what? The general fund, right? That's right. It's not earmarked. That, that, see, this is the thing. People look at the estate tax and 
You know, the Republicans branded it the death tax, and it just goes to general revenues. It has no purpose. See, my proposal is give it a purpose, yeah. real meaning. And so when you say to people, you know what? And it makes so much sense because what are pe- people who are really wealthy, what do they do? They pass the money on to their kids. There you go. So, so if you're so, and again, I would have exceptions for small family farms and for people who are passing on small businesses. You know, I don't want to hurt people who've like spent their life building something they want to pass on. But for the Jeff Bezoses, the Bill Gateses, the Elon Musks of the world, the, the, the wealthiest people who clearly they can afford it. I mean, come on, you know, how much do you have to give to your kids uh, that could afford this? Right. Um, let's give everybody a jump start in life. Right. And, and I, I honestly believe that I can get the support for it. And even among the wealthiest, because when I talk to my friends about this who are in that cat, you know, I don't know Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, but when I talk to my friends who've done really well, they say, you know what, Alan? I'd be willing to do that. You know, they got a shot. Somebody gave them a shot. I remind everyone we're speaking with congressional candidate Alan Casey. Alan is running for Congress here in the 4th District in Massachusetts. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find my podcast at chaptersradio.com. I do want to just touch real quickly on uh, some of the other key issues that are, sure. that are clearly bearing down on this climate change. Absolutely. Well, I am. Uh, it's an existential threat. Um, our kids are scared. You know, when I first got into the race, within three weeks, I was walking with my son, Reese, and our dog, Zuzu. And he said to me, Dad, I'm really scared. And mm. I'd never heard that from Reese before. Mm. And so I stopped and looked in the eye. I said, Reese, what are you afraid of? And he said, we're, we're killing the planet. Mm. All the pollution, climate change, it's not going to be here for uh, my kids or my grandchildren. Um and I said, Reese, well, that's why I'm running for Congress. That's why I supported you and your big sister, your mom and I, when you want to walk out for, with the Sunrise Movement. It's not too late. So we have to take this seriously. Uh, I'm for the Green New Deal and a just transition to, uh, you know, we could have a clean energy revolution. You know, Brayton Point and Somerset could become a manufacturing capital for wind turbines and put a lot of people to work right in the 4th District, um, for example. We should rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. We should put a price on carbon and let the market help allocate so that we we take it seriously. But most of all, again, my different approach is we got to build a coalition. So there are so many groups working on climate change. There's Sunrise, which is amazing. There's 350.org. There's the Terra Club. There's the League of Conservation Voters. There's NRDC. Senator Ke- uh, Secretary Kerry just launched a new group. Uh, Al Gore's had a group. What I would do if I got into Congress is I, and as a congressperson, you can bring people together. People will show up. Mm-hmm. I would re- work with other friends of mine who've been leaders on the environmental uh, issue, uh, Jay Inslee and others, and say, let's bring all the groups together <laughs> and let's have a strategy meeting and say, okay, folks, can we all agree on what we think the Congress should do? And then have a strategy where we're all going to, rather than each one of us having our own playbook and doing everything on our own, uh, and then let's push the Congress and let's tap all the energy. I mean, again, the, you know, Sunrise is amazing to force the Congress to change. I did this in the service movement. When I met with Senator Kennedy to work on the last bill of his life, the Serve America Act, he said to me, Alan, here's the deal. If you can line up all the service groups that you know well, and if you can hammer out what you guys want as a group, and then you agree to stick with that and not – go get a, your own personal amendment if, you're, if one group doesn't get what they want, 
I'll get you 90 to 95% of what you want. If I know there's a coalition behind this without end runs. And so we spent the time, we got 100 organizations that reached 100 million people from the AARP to the Lions Club to Habitat for Humanity to City Year, Public Allies, Teach for America, Youth Build, et cetera. And we were, and he, said, he also said, you got to go get me Senator Hatch. It's got to be bipartisan. And I did that. And we got 95% of what we wanted, Jim. So I know how this works. Yeah. The environmental movement has to come together in a coalition. And it's part of the reason you asked why I went for Congress. I can't do that as a citizen. No. And the but message if I'm is- in Congress, I can yeah. convene that meeting. I can co-convene it. It won't be me alone. There are people who have who've been working on this issue much longer. But I understand the movement politics. I understand coalition building. Yeah. That's the, the unique experience that I have. There aren't you know, there's plenty of legislators and lawyers and lobbyists in Congress. There aren't enough movement people. Yeah. And, and you know, Alan, I, I think about the messaging to me as a consumer. I'm somebody who wants to be involved in that movement. And, and it's confusing and it's mixed because it's coming from a number of different voices. So you, you make a great point. What about health care? Uh, well, you know, as I mentioned, I came from a health care family. My mom was, first, yeah. my mom was a doctor. Uh, I had a, the most frightening experience of my life is after my daughter Mirabel was born on day three, the doctors came to us and said, your daughter has a serious heart defect. Uh, she was born with a congenital heart defect. She had to have emergency surgery at six weeks of age. It's the hardest thing my wife and I have ever been through. Yes. Uh, thankfully, we had health insurance and we had Children's Hospital, you know, one of the best in the world. And you know, uh, they took care of her, saved her life. She had to have another emergency surgery when she was 13. So uh, she has a pre-existing condition. So thank goodness for the Affordable Care Act. So I think everybody, and we're seeing it now with COVID, everybody has to have health care as a right. Um, we have to look at public health, not just personal health insurance. Here's what I believe we should do. I think we should build off the Affordable Care Act. I think we should have a strong public option. I called for this 10 years ago. I think there should be, for people who can't afford it, there should be subsidies so they get it, uh, uh, either free or an affordable level. I also think that, so everybody has coverage. I also think that we should, uh, we got to get the money out of politics. We, it's, it's ridiculous that as the biggest provider, as the biggest purchaser of, of drugs through Medicare and Medicaid, that we can't negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies. If we were able to do that, we'd save hundreds of billions of dollars. We need to be able to do that. Um, I also think that we need to move from a system that right now incentivizes procedures and payments. You know, if you talk to the medical people, they say it's heads and beds to a system that incentivizes wellness and prevention. We gotta deal with issues uh, and education around diabetes, obesity, et cetera. I also think we need to cover mental health. Thank you, um, you just took the take, words right need, out of my mouth. Well, we need to take, uh, uh, we have to understand that mental health is a health issue. Uh, it's ridiculous, too many plans don't cover it. When they do, it's impossible to get the reimbursements. That We have to take that out of the shadows. 60% of our teenagers are suffering from anxiety. Um, uh, we need to deal with that. Uh, we need to be able to, as you've done with SAFE, we got to look at the opioid crisis as a health issue and a care issue, not a criminal issue. Um, so I think there's a number of things we have to do. And finally, what the COVID crisis teaches us is we need to think about public health. We've had, we've had a fight about, well, should people be insured? Absolutely, that's right. But we also have to have a much more comprehensive strategy around our public health uh, and how we're educating people, how we're looking at issues of pub, public health, how your health and my health are connected. We're seeing this with COVID now. 
Um, if somebody gets the virus, they don't have paid family and medical leave, they don't have health insurance, so they don't get tested or they don't go to a doctor, and then it spreads. So right, we, it is. We, we lose lives because of that. Another thing I want to cover is, you know, and again, I'm so inspired by what happened with the former General Motors plant in Franklin. Yes. We got to save our small businesses. I mean, this is a big impact of the COVID crisis. And again, I think Washington totally screwed this up. Um, I put on an idea very early with like March 16th. I ended up writing two op-eds on it called emergency wage support. I suggested that for our small businesses, rather than having a convoluted loan program, and we're seeing now that it didn't work, it didn't go to a lot of minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, uh, the people that needed the most, the people that didn't have the big banking relationships, that we should pay people direct, directly through the treasury, keep people in their jobs rather than throwing them on an employment line right. so that as the crisis lifts, people could be right back to work reopening uh, and they could use that time for upskilling, for uh, getting ready for volunteering. Um, I actually was able to get Senator Mark Warner to introduce this as legislation. He brought in Bernie Sanders and Doug Jones. As he said, the whole ideological spectrum of the Democratic Party, Congresswoman Jayapal has introduced similar legislation in the House. I still think we need it. Again, I think we're, we're in a New Deal moment where we need to think about big, bold ideas. Anybody, any small business that is uh, going out of business now, it's not their fault. It's because of the COVID crisis, because we said we had to have a stay-at-home order. Well, that we needed to do that to protect people. So I think the government should come in and keep them alive until we can reopen safely. Uh, because if we lose our small businesses, we've lost the heart, uh, uh, life and soul of our community. 60%, right. um, uh, 50% of the people in the 4th District are employed through small businesses. Mm. It's the lifeblood of our economy. It's also what makes the community work. So uh, I'm going to keep fighting for that. And I think this should be a part of the, we need a 21st century uh, social safety net. I mean, we're going to have more pandemics, sadly, because of climate change. You know, when a hurricane hits or a tomato, we're about to hit hurricane season. A lot of small businesses get wiped out. Again, it's not their fault. Well, if we had emergency wage support, you could keep people in their jobs as they rebuild, reopen. This is something I think that we should do, just like we did Social Security, just like we did uh, other reforms during the 30s. So uh, I'm going to be a real champion for small business. Um, I've been a not-for-profit entrepreneur myself um, uh, because I also, I also think we should have small business incubators. Again, during the recession, that's a time when a lot of people say, you know what, I can't get a job. I'll go start something myself. But they need support. Um, they need help with startup funds. They need help with strategic planning, business planning. Organizing and, and meeting like-minded people. Yes. Exactly. Final question for you. Um, you represent the 4th District, should you be elected. Yes. Um, and you get into office, and you've got to stay in touch with people all the way from Brookline all the way down. You mentioned the South Coast. How do you uh, – what type of organizational uh, structure are you going to bring in to make sure that people's voices are fairly heard? Thank you for that. Well, you know, uh, I'm doing the plan for the district, but I'm also gonna, I'm, uh, I'm gonna steal a page from my good friend Jeff Roy's uh, uh, playbook, which is, you know, when I came in to talk with Jeff, he said that you're not just talking with me, you're gonna meet with 17 of my closest advisors. They're like my, they're my advisory group so that I can stay close to the ground is what's happening in my district. So I am gonna set up in every one of the 34 cities and towns, a congressional advisory council with, with leaders like you from that represent labor, that represent uh, the environment, education, health, the key issues, nonprofit entrepreneurs. 
uh, and say, okay, you guys are going to help me be effective. Um, I'm going to have an office in the southern part of the district. Um, I'm going to stay, I'm going to do regular town meetings by Zoom and then in person. But I'm going to have these councils, including young people, by the way. And, but, and, they're, and I'll meet with them regularly and say, let me know what's going on in Franklin. Let me know what's going on in Fall River. Let me know what's going on in Taunton. Let me know what's going on in Seacock. Let me know what's going on in Attleboro. Let me know what's going on in Needham. So that, uh, you know, again, one person can't do it all. And the great thing about that is, uh, and ideas will surface, issues will surface, so that if I, you know, if I need to show up somewhere, if I can be helpful, um, that'll be something that I create. I'm also going to have on my staff locally in the district uh, a, a director of economic development because I think, Beautiful. you know, to, I want to do more things like the reopening of the General Motors plant, get the wind turbine facility going at Brayton Point, um, uh, help economic development and have, uh, and very few congressional offices do this. You know, usually I will have the constituent service people, but I want somebody who is going to be there full time in the district. And that will be more in the Southern part of the district that really needs the economic development growth, uh, who will be uh, on my team working with local leaders. Okay. What can we do now? How do we, how do we reopen other or repurpose other plants? How do we make sure we're leveraging Bristol Community College and its great training programs? How do we um, expand the uh, facility in Taunton? Uh, that's that's an incubator uh, for for jobs. So that's the other thing that I'll do. I so appreciate your time on all of this. I really think this is a, a terrific window into, as I said, into you, the candidate, and you, the person, and the man, uh, and and your life's work. How do people get in touch with you? Well, Jim, it's been great to be with you. So you can reach me directly at uh, alan at alankazy.com. It's A-L-A-N-K-H-A-Z-E-I.com. Or you can go to my website at uh, www.alankazy.com. Fantastic. And Alan, of course, is on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. And uh, he's going to be a busy guy over the next 33 days as we record this. And people, more than anything, please remember and get out and vote. So for my guest, Alan Casey, my name is Jim Derrick saying thanks for listening to Chapters. I will see you next week. Mm -hmm.